Good morning. Hope you're all doing well today. If you want to turn to Exodus. Uh, taking a brief break from the Gospel of John for, Lord willing, a few weeks. And we'll be looking at some passages in Exodus. Um, and really, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 4 today. And as we've done other times when we're covering a really long passage, I'm actually going to read uh, a section of it um, from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve them on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as our passage ends, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, that you are the eternal and everlasting God. And it is because of that that we come to you in praise. 
Lord, you are the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, who are we that you are mindful of us? And in spite of our sins, Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious Heavenly Father. And for your Son, who came into the world and lived a perfect life and died and rose. Lord, may we all believe in that and trust in that, Lord. That we have a personal God who invites us to know him. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. As always, we pray that we would be pointed to you. That we would be pointed to the truth of your gospel. Lord, we pray that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged. Encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Lord, we pray that you bless our time today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we're taking a short break from the Gospel of John, Lord willing, to spend a few weeks in Exodus, the Exodus event. And I say the Exodus event because the term Exodus in the Bible has a couple of different meanings. Exodus is the name of the book that we're in today, the second book of the Bible. But there is also the Exodus, where God redeems the Israelites from slavery in Egypt for the purpose of bringing them to the promised land. And the Exodus begins in the book of Exodus, but the Exodus does not end in the book of Exodus. The Exodus ends in the book of Joshua, the Bible's best book. Now, we won't get all the way to Israel in the next few weeks studying these passages, but I wanted to begin the story. The Exodus and God's redeeming work in the life of Israel. And these are events that throughout the rest of the Old Testament are constantly referred back to. And outside of creation, I would argue it's the most important event in the Old Testament. From the Exodus... We get the law of the Old Testament, God's miraculous sign of redeeming Israel from Egypt, the holy days of the Old Testament. It is in the context of the desert wanderings that we see great miracles, divine provision, tests of faith. It is in the Exodus that the priesthood and the sacrificial system are instituted. The Exodus is important. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at some of the primary scenes in the Exodus event. And so today, the flow might be a little bit different than what we typically do on sermons, because again, we're looking at several chapters in this book. Now, the plan is for it to still be the normal length, but the style today might be a little bit different. And in spite of that, it's my prayer that Today's message will still be edifying and applicable and worshipful and informational. It's my hope that this passage today that we'll we'll look at, really chapters 1 through 4, will point us to the greatness of God. And that it's the same God who was at work thousands of years ago in the lives of the Israelites who's at work today. As we study different passages in the Exodus event, usually it will be just one chapter at a time. But again, this week, and Lord willing, next week, we'll be looking at longer sections to really give the background 
of how the Israelites come to the Red Sea. And so, again, this week we'll be looking at the beginning of Exodus and God calling Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But before we do that, just to give a little bit of background, in the book of Genesis, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So included in God's promise to Abraham, God would make Abraham's name great. He would make him a great nation. And Abraham's descendants would be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 15... God restates the covenant and the promises and elaborates on the covenant. And there's more emphasis placed on a promised land. And in that context, God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God says that to Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the three patriarchs of Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. And the one who's next in line to keep the family going is a man named Judah. But Judah is sometimes a bit overshadowed in the book of Genesis by another one of his brothers. The story of Joseph is found in Genesis chapter 37 and then chapters 39 through the end of Genesis in chapter 50. Perhaps one of the most popular stories in the Old Testament. In the story of Joseph, we see a man betrayed by his own family, enslaved in Egypt, betrayed again in Egypt, but with a God-given ability to prophesy dreams, Joseph is able to foretell a time of abundance and a time of famine. And that knowledge ultimately saves Israel. Joseph's brothers were struggling with famine. And in spite of what they had done to him, Joseph was in a position to save them. He also saved Egypt. We look at this story oftentimes as an example of pointing to the way how God works evil for good. And it does that. But there are two other things biblically and theologically that are very significant about that story. First, it preserves Judah and thus preserves the line that leads to Christ. Secondly, it's what brings Israel to Egypt. Genesis ends there. And Exodus picks up several generations later with the Israelites still in Egypt. Why are they there? Because God had told Abraham in Genesis 15 that they would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs. And so with that, the book of Exodus begins. And the Egyptian pharaohs have become paranoid about the growth of the Israelites. And so they've enslaved the people. And again, as we get into Exodus, 
these first four chapters really somewhat more of an overview this morning. So think of these four chapters as four scenes that we'll be focusing on. And with that, we come to Exodus chapter 1. Again, Exodus chapter 1 begins by connecting Exodus to Genesis. And it introduces the plight of the Israelites who have become enslaved under Pharaoh. But in spite of their enslavement, their population has rapidly grown. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh has political concerns over this because if the population becomes too great, they might make attempts to overthrow him. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And so what he does with the enslaved Israelites is he tries to make their work even harder. But the Israelite population continues to grow. So he devises a second, even more wicked scheme. Exodus 1, verses 15 through 18. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So Pharaoh attempts a, the term is androcide, when you're just trying to kill off the males in a population. It's horrific to consider the attempts that have made, made to kill off large groups of people throughout history. In the past century alone, over 100 million people have died in genocides. The Holocaust, Soviet purges, China's cultural revolution, Rwanda, Cambodia, Turkey, and the list goes on and on. And it's a story that has repeated itself many times throughout human history. And the king of Egypt tries to exterminate all the Israelite males. And, as the passage tells us, he calls two midwives, Shifra and Pua, but they disobey the king's orders. The passage tells us that they feared the Lord. Ultimately, they tell the king that the, Hebrew, that the Israelite women give birth so quickly that they don't even have the opportunity to do that. So the king tries a third time to control the Hebrew population by ordering parents to throw their infant males into the river. Again, trying to kill off men specifically is not unheard of. It happened during the Armenian Genocide a little over 100 years ago. Armenian Genocide. Iraq, in the late 1980s, tried to do the same thing to the Kurdish people. Mankind is capable of tremendous evil and wickedness. And so Pharaoh wants to kill off all the males, potential soldiers. And who is it who's born in the midst of all of that upheaval? With that, we come to chapter 2, the birth of Moses. And I'll read from chapter 2. This one I didn't make a slide for because I'm going to read a longer section here. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him for three months. 
When she could hide him no longer, she took him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and said her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So when Moses is born, he's put into a basket and placed into the river. But in a twist of irony, the Pharaoh's daughter saves Moses from the very waters that her father had ordered him to be placed into. And the sister of Moses, presumably Miriam, witnesses this. And when Pharaoh's daughter takes pity on the young Moses... His sister asks if she should find a wet nurse to care for this baby. From our text, it says, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So ultimately, Moses is given back to his own mother. In the second half of chapter 2, Moses is a grown man. Jewish tradition places him at about 40 years. And he sees an Egyptian slave master assaulting one of the Israelites. And when Moses intervenes, the Egyptian is struck and dies. And so Moses flees as a fugitive. Well, on the run, he takes a wife, Zifra, the daughter of Jethro. But chapter 2 ends by tying the whole story back to God's promises. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So the Israelites cry out to God, in the face of their plight under Egyptian rule. And the passage tells us that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, when the Bible talks about God remembering a covenant, that doesn't mean that he forgot, but that God is about to act in accordance with his own covenant promise that he made to Abraham. Again, God had said way back in Genesis 15, That the Israelites would be in a land not theirs. But now, God is ready to act. God does not always act in the timeline that we would like. 
I know there are challenges that our society and our world are facing today. It's certainly been a crazy couple of years. Everyone is tired of dealing with COVID. I think we're all probably tired of hearing the word COVID. Increases in crime, a society that is getting further from the gospel and more secular, moral issues that are absolutely opposed to what God calls us to. For many, dissatisfaction with politics. And I look at those things, and I think of the things that people have had to endure throughout history, and how so many people have had to go through so much worse. For some of our more senior members, you lived through the Great Depression. You had family members fighting World War II. And I think of how horrendous and terrible that was. And as someone personally who loves studying history, I think of how brutal so much of history has been. And I think of the challenges we face today, and there are challenges we face today. And I think, we'll be okay. Sometimes there are challenges we don't want. Sometimes we do see the really nasty impact of sin in our lives, in our society, in the world. And that's difficult. There's no shortage of things to look at and be dissatisfied with. But sadly, too often, we can let that distract us from God. People have worshipped and loved God through far greater difficulties than anything we're dealing with. People have prayed to our Lord through far more challenging times. People have celebrated our great Savior in times of far more turmoil and upheaval. And it's important to keep perspective that God is on the throne, that he is still the king, and he is still at work in the world and in our lives and in the lives of his people. And with that, we come to chapter 3, third scene. Moses is called upon by the Lord. Again, I'll read from the passage. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So Moses is shepherding a flock. Keep in mind that in ancient times, being a shepherd was a pretty lowly profession. It was like being on the Illinois coaching staff. Pathetic. The passage tells us that it's not even his own flock. It's his father-in-law's flock. So it suggests that he's not particularly well-to-do. And an angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. In this passage and other passages where it uses the term angel of the Lord. Because the angel will speak with divine authority. Is it simply an angelic messenger? God uses angels 
at the birth of Christ to speak to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph? Is that what this is? Is it a what's called theophany, an appearance of the Lord? Is it possible that it's an appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ? Honestly, that's where I lean. But the definitive answer to that question is one that I don't think we can know until we're in the presence of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush. And it's miraculous. The first miracle of many that will happen during the Exodus. And the angel of the Lord tells Moses to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It is an awesome and overwhelming experience. And it's also instructive of a point in approaching the Lord that it requires holiness and reverence. We do not just approach a holy God any way we want. A theme that, again, will play out over and over during the Exodus. In verse 7 and 8, the Lord talks of seeing the affliction of the Israelites and his plan to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Verse 10, the Lord calls upon Moses to lead the Israelites. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses is hesitant. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, is Moses just humble? As the story unfolds, we'll see that he really does not want to accept this divine calling. We'll finish chapter 3 with one final scene. Chapter, uh, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So he asks the Lord for his name. And that might seem like an odd request. And there's lots of different theories on why Moses asked that question. And lots of historical background as to why he might have asked that question. God had previously mentioned being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's possible that the collective memory of the Israelites of the covenant had dwindled or diminished or deteriorated over their centuries of Egyptian enslavement. We don't know for sure, though. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Once again, a verse that has generated discussion for centuries. A forest would need to be cut down to supply the paper that has been written on Exodus 3.14. When God says to Moses, I am who I am. 
In Hebrew, God is responding to Moses with the verbal form to be. And so when God simply says, I am, it does seem to be pointing to his pure existence, that God is being in himself. He's not a was God, he simply is. But that begs the question, when God says to Moses, I am, is he telling Moses that his name is I am? Should I am be looked at as a proper name for God? The Old Testament writers don't seem to think so. We don't see them referring to God as I am elsewhere in the Old Testament. Obviously, we've spent two years in John. Jesus uses the I am statements, which clearly are a reference to this passage, which are Jesus clearly pointing to his own divinity. But in our passage, in the following verse, 315, God gives his actual divine name to Moses. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Lord. In Hebrew, the term is Yahweh. And to the Hebrews, that name was sacred. The word was so sacred that people oftentimes would not even say it. But God identifies himself with Yahweh and again reminds Moses that he is the same God of his ancestors and that he has called Moses for a sacred purpose. So you have Moses, someone who had been thrown into the river as a baby, an Israelite saved by an Egyptian who had become a fugitive, who is a poor goat herder, who is old. The traditional view is that he's around 80 years old at this time. And as we continue, we learn that Moses really does not want this job. And we'll come to our final chapter. We're looking at Exodus 4. And it's basically a back and forth between Moses giving all of the reasons why he really is not the right person for the job. And this is the man God chooses. Moses, er, Moses says in chapter 4, verse 1, the people won't believe me. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Perhaps not an unreasonable thought for Moses. But it does show that he's not implicitly trusting the Lord here. The Lord displays this miracle of this burning bush and speaks to him and tells him what to do. And Moses is afraid that he won't be believed. And so the Lord displays a sign, which is something that he will do throughout the ministry of Moses. He will display his divine glory. The Lord said to him, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. 
In the next scene, God has Moses put his hand in his cloak. When he takes it out, he has leprosy. He puts it back in, and his hand is immediately healed. God says to Moses in verses 8 and 9, If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So God is saying that he will show himself through Moses. But Moses brings up another reason why he's not the right person. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. He's saying, Lord, public speaking just is not my thing. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I made you. I made everything. If you want to be able to speak my word, you'll be able to. Verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses tries to refuse the call. God relents a little, but he will allow Aaron, the brother of Moses, to speak to Pharaoh. Although Moses will address the Israelites on many occasions and be their leader during the Exodus and in the desert wanderings. So again, Moses is old. He's of humble background. He doesn't want to do the job. Yet this is the man the Lord chose. Perhaps not the most obvious choice, but that's so often what we see throughout the Bible. He chooses a barren couple well beyond childbearing years in Abraham and Sarah to make his covenant. He chooses the youngest son of Jesse, the runt of the family, David, to defeat Goliath and become the great king of Israel. He chooses a young, unmarried virgin named Mary, ironically named after the sister of Moses, to bring the king of kings into the world, not in Jerusalem or Rome, but in Bethlehem, not in a palace, but in a manger. Jesus didn't choose the smartest people to be his disciples. He picked people like Peter, who's kind of a loudmouth. He chose Matthew, who was a hated tax collector. The Lord didn't choose the greatest Christian to be his greatest missionary in the New Testament. He chose somebody who hated and was a persecutor of the church in Paul. And it was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God's call is not about us. It's not about how smart we are, how talented we are, how awesome we are. God often chooses those who would perplex the world for some of his greatest tasks. He chose Moses in spite of the apparent deficiencies that he had. He chose Moses 
in spite of the fact that Moses didn't want to be chosen. Do you ever feel like you're not gifted or equipped for ministry? Let us trust in the Lord who enables us to serve him. The Bible says that every believer has spiritual gifts which can be used for building up the church. Do you ever resist the things that God has called you to? Again, it's so much easier to go with the flow and do your own thing and play it safe. But God has us here to serve him. That's why you're here. No matter how gifted you think you are or how lacking in gifts you think you are, no matter how young or old you are, there's no retiring from serving the Lord. If God did not still have a purpose for you in your life, he'd bring you home. But he hasn't. And that's for a reason. We might retire from our jobs, but we never retire from serving the Lord. We matter in God's story. It's interesting in these passages that we don't know who this Pharaoh is. There's scholarly opinions, and I think that's worthwhile. But within the Bible itself, it's silent on which of the Egyptian Pharaohs this is. The Bible tells us all sorts of kings in the ancient world. The Bible lists Persian kings, Assyrian kings, Babylonian kings, people who are historical figures. But this story doesn't tell us which Pharaoh it is. If you remember back in chapter 1, chapter 1 names two midwives, Shifra and Pua. Those names get mentioned, but we don't know which Pharaoh. At the time, perhaps the most powerful man in the world. At the time, perhaps the most powerful man in the history of the world. And it's interesting. The Egyptians are probably the ancient society that we know the most about, that are most interesting to us in modern times. We see the great pyramids that they built, monuments to their leaders, their attempts at immortality. But there's God's story and the story of the world. And the people who seem really important in one are not always so important in the other. In, the, in ancient times, for a long time, Israel was not called Israel. It was actually called Bet Omri, the house of Omri. If you know your Old Testament, he's one of the Israelite kings. Not a particularly good king, I would say a bad king. But in the Bible, he's not really a major player. Mentioned a few times. David's mentioned hundreds of times. Omri's mentioned, I think, 15 times. But to secular history, the whole nation for centuries was named after him. We don't know which pharaoh, but we know the names of the two midwives. In the eyes of their society, obviously the pharaoh was infinitely more important but in God's story, these two women who served faithfully and feared the Lord are relevant. And we all have a way that we fit into God's story. We're all called to serve God, to love God, to love people. We're called to be faithful. So many things society tells us we should care about. 
We all want to be remembered. We all want to be great. Going through a new book, The Case for Heaven by Lee Strobel, just came out last week. And in the first chapter, they talk about psychologically and philosophically, so much of what humanity does is really out of a fear of death and wanting to cause our names to be carried on. We see rich people today name buildings after themselves, scholarships after themselves. We walk through the park and see names on bricks. I'm not saying that those things are wrong. But what's great to God isn't always what society tells us is great. We desire so desperately to be remembered and to matter. We can matter by faithfully serving God. Again, books and movies might not get written about us. But so many people who the world think are so important, in a generation, are names that nobody's going to know. I was going through a biography last year of a man named Roald Amundsen, obviously household name. He discovered the, I believe, South Pole. He was a, maybe it was the North Pole. Uh, he discovered one of the poles whose explorer, I believe he discovered the Northwest Passage, a bunch of stuff. And in his lifetime, he was the most famous person in the world. And unless you're really a history buff, most of us don't know that name. It doesn't take that many generations to be forgotten. But we're so desperate to be remembered. We matter in God's story and in serving him and in loving people and in serving his church. And let us be people who wholeheartedly serve the Lord, serving his purposes, not our purposes, serving his kingdom, not our kingdom, for the glory of God and to keep advancing his story. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, you have placed eternity in our hearts and we so often point that in the wrong direction to ourselves and what we can do. Lord, let us look to Christ and the life that he invites us into. Lord, let us look to you, the faithful God, throughout time, throughout generations, throughout history, who has been faithful to his people. And let us love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.